Hello, and welcome to another episode of Politically Entertaining. I'm Frank. I'm here with Byron. Byron, let's uh, welcome all the listeners to the show. Give them a heads up about what we talk about on Politically Entertaining and just get anything off your chest you need to. Here on Politically Entertaining, we pretty much try to break down news and politics. Uh, We mainly do it for people that don't follow it on a daily basis, but if you do follow it, we still invite you to take a listen. Uh, We try to tell you what's important, and me and Frank try to cover things that we feel uncovered as much in the mainstream media. Uh, Before we get into news and politics, however, Frank, as you know, we had the NFL draft a couple of weeks ago, and uh, the mother of one of the players that were drafted, she she tweeted something that was very interesting. Her name is uh, Annie Apple. Her son, Eli Apple, was drafted to the New York Giants, and she sent out this tweet not long after her son was uh, drafted. I'm praying for all the thirsty girls sliding in new NFL rookies DM with heavy booty and cleavage action picks. Only Jesus can quench your thirst. <laughs> so my my question to you is, well, first off, I get it. You know, a lot of people celebrated that tweet like, yeah, because, you know, gold diggers be after these players. But statistically, a lot of times, Players go broke because of family. A lot of not saying that she's going to be one of those moms, but it can be parents, uh, sisters, brothers, cousins. Those are the people that drive players broke. But I wanted to ask you: Do you think she's angling for a reality show in the future? You think we'll be seeing her on uh, Bravo or E or any of those other channels? That's a great question. Let me just say and throw it out there. I, you know, I'm I'm a Giant, huge New York Giants fan. I grew up watching him. My dad's from Brooklyn, so I, I do follow the Giants. So I'm very familiar with, with Eli Apple. And what a great name. His name's Eli, and his last name's Apple. He's going to New York. Could that be any more fitting? But, <laughs> right. I, I, but, I, but I digress, right? So Annie Apple, to me, is certainly, uh, you know, a, she's certainly, I would say, not afraid of the limelight. I don't know if she's angling for a show or not, but what I will say is, you know, her her advice is is is, is true. And there's a lot of thirsty women out there, like you said. Family, uh, you know, is is, a, is definitely a reason. Bad investments, family lending, and uh, you know those kind of things can definitely hurt a player's income. But more than anything, I think she addressed something that it is an issue. You know, it's, there's there's sites called Baller Alert and other things where players are targeted, and I think that is something that. You know, one of the other things I think she mentioned was that, you know, you're, to her son, you're good-looking, but you're, you know, they're not really with you for that. And so she's giving him a good reality check because I think as a young man, you know, we're we're older and married with children, but I do think we, you know, rewind the clock 15 years and put a bunch of money in our hand, we might think we look a little better than we do. And, and it's good to have the reality check. So I do applaud her for that. And uh, we'll, we'll see how he plays on the field cause that's what I'm more interested in. She said praying for all the thirsty girls. I can't help but wonder if she wanted to put another word that people usually substitute for those type of girls in there. But mm. she also has Jesus in the tweet, so she probably felt better of it. <laughs> but anyway, man, let's get into some politics. entertaining your cliff's notes to american politics and now your host frank and byron entertaining going to talk about two senators that are uh, fighting poverty the number one problem that we feel is going on with the media and we'll be talking to dr amanda williams later on in the show uh first i wanted to start off frank with as you know we mentioned this on last episode uh, on the Republican side, Donald Trump seems to have the Republican nomination pretty much locked up. And on the Democratic side, it's a little bit more contesting, but for the most part, Hillary Clinton has the Democratic side locked up. And what's been angering me a lot lately on TV is I've been seeing all these Democratic strategists and staffers and former politicians 
they seem to be a little bit too gleeful that they'll be facing Donald Trump in the general election. They're making the same mistakes that all us experts made when he first made his announcement, how it seemed like a joke. We was laughing. Ha ha, what is Donald Trump going to do? Nobody's going to take him seriously. And, Frank, I just can't believe after seeing what this man has done, getting more primary votes than any Republican in history, winning all these different primaries and caucuses, that a major political party will still be taking him lightly. Other than Van Jones, Bill Maher, and Congressman uh, Keith Ellison from Minnesota, who back in July was one of the few people that said, it's a YouTube clip that I actually put up on our Facebook page, but he said that, hey, I can see Donald Trump winning this nomination. He was on, I think it was Face the Nation, one of those Sunday shows, and and all the other guests, they laughed at him. They literally laughed at him, and the host even said, you, you don't even, you don't believe that. You don't really believe that, and he turned out to be right, so I, I don't know. It's, it's not really uh, any type of opinion that I'm giving on it other than it's just kind of making me angry that why why do you think Democrats still haven't learned their lesson and are taking this man so lightly when he's shown that he can get votes? Well, I mean, you pose a very interesting question, uh, and I recommend, as you posted, as, as you said, you posted a YouTube clip with, with uh, what you say, Keith, Keith Ellison, is that, is that the, right, the right name? Yes. Okay, yes. and also Van Jones. I think it's worth going to our page and looking at those uh, two videos just simply because obviously a little bit different but you know in van jones video he he explains that how trump can win the nomination and i think people don't understand the electorate map and it's something we we haven't really talked about a whole lot but you know one of the things in, in the presidential elections most of the states award winner take all so it's not proportional i know there's in some of the primaries you have proportional and things like that but most of the states in the in the national election there it's it's winner take all so if you know, this state has 20 uh, electoral votes. That's how many uh, is won if you win the majority uh, vote. So in the swing states, Donald Trump is, you know, say, say uh, you know, potentially Virginia, North Carolina, Ohio, Michigan. Trump could could win those states, and that and that's all that it would take for him to win the nomination. And and I think that's what people don't understand. It's not about him winning 70% of the vote. I don't think that would happen. I don't think anybody's claiming that. But his but his path to the White House is is a lot clearer than people want to admit. And the reason why people are not taking it seriously is because they, they feel like he will trip up on something, he'll say something, he'll do something that will discredit him and, and people will turn away. But I think, you know, as I, I don't want to keep going back quoting Van Jones, but as Van Jones put it, Donald Trump is master social media and he – is able to say and do anything he wants because he understands he he's basically pulled the election into the medium of reality TV and social media where he is the master of the domain. So he can say whatever he wants, he can do whatever he wants because he's like a villain in a reality show. And I'm all paraphrasing from this video, but he's basically uh, you know a villain in a reality show. And we're tuning in to see if you know who gets voted off, and he's still hanging around. It's like Survivor. It's like Big Brother. You know, he's he's just hanging out. And I think. It, 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 there's, there's an, a general apathy in, in our voters that's allowing him to be able to stick around. And I think that that apathy combined with the train wreck effect that we have of, of wanting to see stuff will put him on a very direct path to the White House. So, you know, honestly, I don't care what the polls say. I'd say he's got just as good, good a chance to win as Hillary. I give him a 50-50 chance at this point. Uh, you know, it's a complete toss-up, and, and it's very, very worrisome, but that's where we are. You brought up three important points, and uh, one, uh, in the general election, uh, none of the states are proportional. It's all uh, winner-take-all with the Electoral College, which is why you can have an incident where an Al Gore has more popular votes, but if you believe that Bush even won Florida, that Bush had more Electoral votes, and you brought up a good point about the villain in the reality show. One of his uh, supporters, who I believe worked in the Clinton White House, Omarosa, she was on his show, uh, The Apprentice, and she was one of the people that they tuned in to to see because she was kind of quote the villain of the show, and she she lasted a long time because you know she meant ratings. And you also mentioned that them them may be hoping that he said something wrong. I think that fuels his supporters. Like, they, they don't care about his gaffe. They don't care about any um, 
any hypocritical quotes that he may have or contradicting statements he may have, they don't care about anything. His voters are his voters, and it's just it's maddening to – I mean, if you're a Republican, you've got to be – especially a Trump voter, you got to be rubbing your palms. Like, yeah, continue to underestimate him. Like, right now, he's tied with or even leading Clinton in a lot of swing states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Florida, which is very important states. You may have heard time and time again. Uh, Republicans don't win the White House without Ohio. And right now he's tired of even leading her in that state, which is why you're hearing the name Senator Sherrod Brown as a possible VP, VP pick for her, because he's from Ohio. I just had to get that off my chest before we really get into, you know, different deals and policies, because it's just, I understand how they can underestimate that man, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, folks, we do want to remind you that we are available on iTunes, we're available on Stitcher. Uh, you can download podcasts off of Google Play or Podbean. Subscribe to the series. Just type in Politically Entertaining. We're also on Facebook, Politically Entertaining on Facebook. And, again, we'll be talking to Amanda, Amanda excuse me, Dr. Amanda Williams, excuse me for that, Dr. Amanda Williams later in the show. Speaking of bills that are in Congress, there is a current bill in the House, um, it's a section of uh, the 2010 nutrition deal, and Republicans are pretty much trying to roll roll it back. What this bill does, Frank, is right now uh, schools in poor areas, if the uh, student body, if 40% of the student body is living in the poverty uh, level or below, then every student in that school gets a free lunch or after-school meal. Republicans... You know, they lead the House. They have the majority in the House. They want to change that threshold from 40% to 60%. And it just kind of ties into what we talked about last show about uh, this this war on poverty, it seems, sometimes. That may not sound a lot from 40% to 60%. That actually totals up to an, to an additional 7,022 schools that would be affected. If they move it to that 50% threshold, that will have to go without the uh, free lunch program. That adds up to, like, over 3 million students that won't be getting lunch. In addition, there's, like, another uh, 11,000 schools that haven't even applied for it yet but were about to. If this bill passes, then they also won't be eligible. So I just don't – I don't – I mean, their argument is it's going to save taxpayers dollars. It's going to fight fraud and waste. But, I mean, do you have any thoughts on, on why we want to go after free lunches for kids, considering the money that we spend on, on other things that is so wasteful, this would be – this would seem like something that we need? I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think the genesis of this turns into uh, – you know, we've, we've seen things like – and I don't want to go and quote The Wire, but if you haven't seen The Wire, great show. You should watch it. But Excellent. Poli- but, but, but politics is a strange, a strange bedfellow of, of, of interest um, combined with opportunity. And anytime there's an opportunity for, you know, one party, doesn't matter if Democrat or Republican, to, to do something that they stand for, say a mandate, then they will go after it, even if it means hurting or undercutting something that fundamentally seems wrong, which fundamentally, anytime to me you take away something from children, and at this point we cannot, you know, blame children. Let's say, you know, even if the parents are not fiscally responsible, if the children, you know, at this age, they deserve to be able to have a lunch, and you know, in public schools, it's not. This is not like in the private schools. It's like in public schools. So they deserve to have this lunch program. But what the Republican lawmakers can go and say is, hey, guess what? We cut your taxes. They don't have to say how they did it. They say, oh, you know, as as part of their running trade, they say, hey, we cut taxes this percentage. But they don't tell you how they did it. They, they don't tell you that they, um, you know, did it. They didn't tell you they took away kids' free lunches and, and left some kids, you know, without food. Just the, just a similar way as in The Wire, there were certain stats they were changing to make crime look a little different. And so what I'm saying is, you got to be careful with this kind of uh, mindset of, oh, we're going to cut taxes. Like, well, I think cutting taxes is a good thing if you can, but, you know, the, the, 
the thing about being in this country and having what you have and being fortunate is, you know, if you if we can't take care of the children, if we can't take care of our, our, our kids, then what are we really doing? What are we really working for? You know, are you working just so you can jump in your money like Scrooge McDuck and DuckTales and swim in your gold coins? I mean, what exactly are we working for if we can't take care of our children? Uh, you know, and, and some people say, well, I take care of my kids. But, you know, if you know, the funny, the craziest part is, and I, don't, and I hate getting, I feel like I'm going off on diatribe too many times, and I'm not against the Republican Party, but one of the things I do criticize them on is they claim that they're a nation of, you know, not nation, I'm saying that wrong. They claim they're the party of Christianity and, and all these things. And, and, and so why would they be against, why would they be for lying their pockets, getting, you know, saving money versus saving children, if that's the case? And I do understand that there might be some waste, there might be some fraud, but at the same time, I don't think that this is the right way to go about this waste and fraud by cutting the lunch program. You know, were students abusing it? Were kids, you know, uh, you know, t- t- you know, stealing other kids' lunches. Like, what exactly is, exact is the reason by taking this away? And so that's the thing that I would be critical of. And so I just feel like we continue to pile pile on our, you know, economically disadvantaged. And you know, it's just it's just not necessary. There's there's got to be another way, another area to, to we can you know cut taxes, move these things around, so that the kids are not impacted. And I think that's the main thing. I think that's why people get frustrated. Uh, you know, and, and like I said, I don't want to go off too far on a tangent, but we can't take care of our kids. What's the point? You know, what's the point of anything? And I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm clear on those statistics. So, like, just again, right now, if a school has – if 40% of the school body uh, is living in poverty, then that school is allowed to give all of its student body uh, free lunches and after school. And by the Republicans pushing that threshold up to 60%, then it's pretty much telling, like, those schools that are at 40% or 45%, they're telling those schools, you're not poor enough to uh, have this free lunch program. So by that, they're definitely excluding a lot more students. In addition, it's putting a lot of burden on these schools because what will happen is they're trying to make it to where students have to individually apply. So these, these schools that are just at 40%, now they will have to apply for free lunch. A lot of these schools are already poor, Frank, so that just puts, you know, more of a burden on the administration with the different paperwork that they have to handle. When they already have limited sources, again, you brought up the wire earlier, one of the main problems of those schools is limited resources. And, again, I get it. I'm all for saving money. I'm all for fighting fraud and waste. Just keep in mind before we move on, folks, and one time the government once spent $667,000 on the benefit of watching reruns on TV. That's not a joke. $667,000 on a study to see what the benefits are of watching reruns on TV. So when me and you watch Martin on TV One, Frank, you know, that that's the type of study they was doing. So we spend crazy money on ridiculous things all the time. So I'm telling you, there are other ways that we can cut money. Um, it, it just seems a little ridiculous to me. Again, we'll be talking to Dr. Amanda Williams later on in the show. She is a member of the Atlanta Site Consultant Physician Group. In Atlanta, we'll be talking about the, the reluctance of African Americans seeking therapy and the best ways to uh, help relatives and loved ones that you think may be suffering from uh, mental strife or that may need some type of therapy. Uh, continuing with the, the, the war on poverty, Frank, uh, we, we have two senators currently that are fighting what I would say the good fight on poverty, uh, Senator Scott, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, and Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey. That's a Republican and a Democrat. You know, last week we talked about the eviction economy, which was talking about, you know, the – poor people's plight and the things that they have to go through. And it's as if they heard our show, they have a bill that they hope will directly help fight poverty in these communities. You know, South Carolina has a lot of deep, uh, poor communities as well as New Jersey. If you ever heard of Camden, New Jersey, and you know New Jersey has its poor towns as well. The name of the bill is uh, Investing in Opportunity Act of 2016. Basically, 
it would have um, private sectors, they pay what they call a capital gain tax. Well, instead of paying uh, that capital gain tax where it goes currently, they would have to go into what they call an opportunity fund. And with this opportunity fund, governors of different states, of their states, of course, would uh, choose how to distribute to the poorest areas in their state and fund local startups like small businesses. And the hope is to spur investment in infrastructure and provide jobs short and long term. Now, I was I was kind of joking, jokingly saying that they must have listened to our show, but, you know, thinking back on what we talked about on the last show with the eviction economy, do you think this is a good start? I think so. I mean, I think any time you can, you can invest, and I think we use that term loosely sometimes, we hear politicians say invest, invest, we need to invest in our infrastructure, we need to invest in our, you know, economy and children and all those things, and you hear those things, you don't really see a plan. This actually seems like it could be a plan. Obviously, I don't, this hasn't been passed, I don't believe, so let's see if, if, if it, you know, gets through. I know that you know, this isn't the greatest time to see, you know, maybe have new, new new laws go through. But I think the the spirit is there. Like you say, you have working across the aisle between Republican and Democratic senator, which which is important. And, you know, this is what we want to see. I, you know, I just I – just, it's amazing to me that we have to have political debates about whether or not investing and building up, you know, areas in our economy and country, certainly with, with our um, economically displaced or disadvantaged, is, is a bad thing. And, and you know it's it's not not to be not to have a pun. Yes, you don't want to give people stuff away for free or give away you know the, the air quotes free lunch to anybody, um, but but it is needed you know at times to build people up because there is there's you know we can't we, the show is not long enough to go into why some things are how they are and why some people are disadvantaged. But I think people just want an opportunity to be able to get on their feet and, and do things and, and, and bills like this will allow. You know, like like you said, small businesses and, and private sector things to to flourish, and 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 there's a lot of innovation. I mean, we talk. It's funny because we have, you know, we talked previously with other, you know, black entrepreneurs, certainly females, and how they had a lack of funding. I mean, there's probably a lot of people out there with business ideas and things that they can't get funding. They don't know how they get started, and, the, and maybe these types of programs can help with that and help bring some, you know, jobs and, and ingenuity to to the economy. Again, it's the Investing in Opportunity Act of 2016. Uh, a couple of points uh, you brought up, actually, like how hard it is to get a bill passed, especially during a presidential election year. So uh, that is what kind of makes this bill stand out. And the fact that it's so bipartisan, uh, it's going to be hard to object to this bill. I'm sure there will be members that will do so. But uh, as one congressman quoted, you know, even the tea, it's going to even be hard for the Tea Party to object to this bill because it's not using government money, folks. Again, it's, it's using money from the private sector and just reinvesting it in the poorest community. So, like, like I say, somebody will find a way to, I guess, come out against it. But it's, it's going to be hard, and I think it has a great chance of passing. Again, um, it's a bipartisan bill, a Republican and a Democrat on it. So I, I like his chances, and um, we will definitely keep you updated uh, as it moves through Congress, and hopefully it will. And when it does, like I said, me and Frank will definitely bring it to you all's attention. Uh, we're going to talk to Dr. Amanda Williams. Uh, later on in the show, we'll also discuss Malcolm X. You know, his birthday is this week, and we'll also uh, discuss what me and Frank think is wrong with the media. But before we do, like I said, let's go ahead and talk to Miss Dr. Amanda Williams. Listen up. It's time for a politically entertaining exclusive interview. Joining us on Politically Entertained today, she's an adult psychiatrist with the Atlanta Psych Consultants. She entered private practice in 2002. She also is the Patient's Choice Award winner as one of Georgia's favorite doctors and the 2012 Compassionate Doctor Recognition Award winner. Dr. Amanda Williams, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. 
Uh, we appreciate you making time. Um, mental health, in my opinion, it it only seems to be discussed after tragedy when someone, you know, does like a mass shooting and we find out that they had mental health issues. And that's the only time it seems like it gets any type of attention. So my goal for this interview was to try to help make people more aware and understanding of, of mental health and the challenges from it. Uh, but I wanted to start with you first. What what led you into your field? Uh, well, it was actually um, just a, a curiosity and an interest in um, how the human mind operates, how the brain operates, um, and exposure. I think it's just the right time. Um, I freshman year of college, uh, I was in sort of a psychology 101 course, and they sent the students out to various locations to observe, and I was actually sent to the state psychiatric hospital. Uh, so there I got to um, basically see how that place was operated, um, hang out with some of the patients and some of the doctors who were treating them, and just sort of see what, what went on. And what I noticed was, well, of course, that there were some incredibly interesting people there, um, and I also noticed that uh, some of them really got a lot better over that summer and were able to be discharged, um, which is a big deal from the state hospital. A lot of times people were there for very long periods of time, years. Um, so that kind of tweaked my interest initially, and coming from a family that has a lot of people in the healthcare field, I had decided that I wanted to become a physician, and I sort of kept psychiatry in particular in the back of my mind. Um, throughout school and, uh, until it was time to make the decision. It sounds like a, a tough field to be in, and we definitely thank you for uh, being one of the, the few that are trying to help people. You are in the Atlanta area, which has a, a large African-American presence. I don't have the numbers to back me up, but it, it just seems like it comes across as the type of help that black people don't seek, and I say that I remember growing up, a lot of my adult relatives, whenever uh, seeking mental health would, would ever come up, they would they would say things such as like, well, that's some that's that's not some black people do, that's that's some white people do, and I remember when I contacted you first, I told you one of the subjects I wanted to go over was why was it that black people seem to not seek that type of help, and you told me obviously. The people that don't seek help, you don't get to see, so you can't <laughs> yeah. you can't yeah. speak in absolutes. But two part right. question: Could you give <laughs> our audience, you know, in your best guess, your opinion as to why that is? And being in Atlanta with such a large African American presence, does it even get noticed when looking at the racial makeup of your patients? Okay, all right. Well, I would say it's multiple factors. Um, Probably near the top of the list would be stigma, which is kind of what you were just referring to, that uh, there's just this idea that this is not something black people do or it's um, a weakness or um, somehow you should be able to work it out uh, through some other means. Um, so I know there's a, a major stigma attached to it um, in the African-American community, um, partly because of um, a pretty negative history of uh, the medical uh, profession in the African-American community, for instance, the Tuskegee experiments from years ago. Right. There's also um, fewer African-American psychologists, psychiatrists, and other mental health professionals, and a lot of times people want to see someone that looks like them and that has a shared experience with them. Um, they're more likely to remain in treatment and have a better outcome if they're with someone that they feel um, it can understand them and their experience, and um, they'd be more maybe uh, willing to disclose uh, things uh, to someone of a similar background. Um, and then I think there's also a couple other factors. Uh, access, um, that there just isn't, again, partly because of the availability of African-American treaters, but also just in general access. Um, fewer people that have insurance that would cover it, um, mental health, um, agencies that serve uh, different counties, just being completely overwhelmed with patients. Wait lists can sometimes be months long. Uh, so access is definitely a problem as well. Um, I think you, you talked a, a little bit uh, about this emphasis that in the African-American community that you can do things yourself, that you um, shouldn't have to seek 
help, that it's a weakness, or um, that this would make you dependent. Um, and there's also sort of a tradition, I think, in the African-American culture that you seek help within your own group, you know, within your own family, within your church community, what have you. Um, the other thing that I have noticed for the, for the um, African-American females in particular who do actually come to see me, one of the things they say is uh, the reason that they put it off so long was because they felt, again, like they had to be the rock in the family, that they needed to be the one that everyone else could lean on, and um, getting help for themselves would, would show that they were not able to do that. This is Frank, uh, Dr. Williams, and I have, I have mm-hmm. a question kind of going right off of that, you know, the whole idea of, uh, you know, how would you say, you know, people, uh, certainly African-American media, it being a stigma, you know, how how many people do you believe, is there a percentage or number you can put on the number of people, not necessarily even race-based, that are actually living with some kind of a mental illness or, or, or maybe because of the stress in their life will develop mental illness? Is there any kind of number or projection on those kind of things? Because I know one of the things that comes up as a huge thing is you'll see gun control, like a mass shooting will happen, they'll say, okay, there needs to be gun control, mental, mental health checks, all this and that. Well, what if you were perfectly sane when you bought the gun, but then things happen and cause you to tumble out of control. Just in your estimation, how many people are close to maybe having a break with reality and having mental illness come on, or is it, you know, can you explain, like, how that that works? Uh, Well, I don't know that I could quote you specific numbers, but I can tell you that, um, in general, it depends on uh, what type of illness. Um, For some of the most severe mental illnesses, like schizophrenia, for instance, uh, where people do lose touch with reality. Um, it's actually the um, incidence of it in the general population is quite low. It's only maybe a few percent uh, of, the, of the general population. Um, but one thing that's interesting about that is that, um, at least historically, uh, black people have been more likely to be diagnosed with a severe mental illness like schizophrenia than their white counterparts, well, especially when they're hospitalized. And there's lots of theories as to why that might be. Um, but, yeah, I think there's a, numerous people out there who could really benefit from uh, mental health treatment who don't seek it out. Mm. I mean, that's, okay, that's very interesting because I can tell a story, and I don't want, you know, so I'm not going to give specifics, but there's somebody very close to me who was diagnosed with, with a mental illness, and, you know, it wasn't even so much that it was almost like the family was almost preventing the treatment initially because we were like, oh, there's nothing wrong with, with, you know, this person. He just needs to do this or he just needs to do that. And then it took a long time. It took some other things to actually happen for it to come out where it actually was kind of showing itself. Uh, you know, what is your recommendation to families who are seeing these some strange things happen, but they're trying to explain it away like, oh, well, you know, he's he's just this or she's just that. How do you what, – what are some of the things that um, – people can do so that it doesn't get to a point where there is an incident and then obviously then you have a, a huge problem. What are, you know, what are your recommendations? Oh, that's a good question because a, a lot of times people don't end up in treatment until they're in crisis uh, because they avoid it for a lot of the reasons that we kind of already touched on. Uh, I think uh, probably the number one thing is just more overall awareness of what mental illness is and how it manifests itself. Um, For instance, there um, was a situation where um, uh, an African-American man ended up um, basically developing psychosis uh, where he lost touch with reality, was hallucinating, um, thought things were happening that weren't really happening, which we refer to as delusions. And the family just had never come across anything like that before, didn't know what to make of it. Uh, thought he just needed to take a break from work or, you know, take a vacation and just didn't appreciate the depth of the problem and how serious these symptoms were. So I think it's, it's, it's more than anything awareness, more awareness in the community of what to look out for, um, that you shouldn't just sweep under the rug, you know, if you have some concerns. I think the other um, advice I would give is if you can go with them to an appointment, um, people are much more likely to follow through. Um, and um, if you show your support in that way by accompanying them to the appointment, um, that, that I think increases the chances that they'll actually go. Uh, and then finally, kind of like we touched on earlier, if, if there is a um, mental health provider that looks like them, 
they maybe uh, may feel more comfortable um, with that kind of a setup. So you might look for someone um, that they can feel comfortable with. Dr. Amanda Williams of Atlanta Site Consultants. If you're in the Atlanta area, you can visit atlantasiteconsultants.com. Uh, if you know anybody that may need help or if you feel like you need help, please visit that website, uh, Dr. Williams, and there are other doctors there. They also have information on uh, mental health in general. Also, nationally, the Mental Health National Hotline, 1-844-891-8463. They're available 24-7. Again, if you know someone that may need help or if you feel like you need to talk to someone, you may dial that number as well. Anxiety and depression, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America estimates nearly 15 million adults have some form of depression. And you spoke about uh, women to an extent a few moments ago. They also state that women suffer from some type of depression, a two-to-one ratio compared to men. And the most common form of mental illness is anxiety disorder that affects uh nearly 40 million adults just in America alone. And those are the ones that are just diagnosed. I'm sure there are many, many more that haven't been diagnosed. Uh, you kind of touched on it in your answer. I was going to ask you um, what are some ways to convince a relative that, you know, may need to seek therapy? What are some ways to convince them of seeking therapy without offending them? I know you say you can offer to go with them, but when you just bring up you know, seeking that type of help. Are there certain ways that you can do it without offending them? That, I, I think I told you before, I, that's one question that I, I wish I knew the answer to. Uh -huh. um, when, when people have done it successfully, um, it has been just a kind of a gentle confrontation of, hey, this is what's going on, this is what I'm concerned about. You know, let's go, let's go talk to somebody about it kind of a thing. And to, to try to make it as, um, non-threatening, you know, situation as possible. Uh, some people have uh, some almost borderline irrational fears about, okay, well, if I do that, they're going to, the people with the white coats are going to come and get me and put me in the hospital or something. Okay. Um, so some of it is just, I think, reassurance that, um, you know, there are, um, that most situations can be handled on an outpatient basis um, and that um, going and talking to someone doesn't obligate you you know, to, to any certain treatment. Okay. Well, again, we want to thank Dr. Amanda Williams for joining us on Politically Entertaining. I did want to uh, ask you one last question. Uh, I hope you don't think it's silly, but <laughs> I know a lot of our listeners are Soprano fans, and if you watch yes. Soprano, you know the make. <laughs> you know where I'm getting at, yes, right? absolutely. <laughs> so I don't expect you to name names, of course, but do you know of other doctors in your field that, you know, due to their workload or certain patients that they themselves have to talk to someone on a regular basis? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, this field is a very... Uh, challenging field. It's very emotionally draining. You have to uh, really work hard to take care of yourself so that you can be in a position to take care of others. And uh, many, many of us, even back in our, our years of training, we were encouraged to to have our own therapist, you know, that we could see and, and discuss things with. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but psychiatrists have one of the highest rates of suicide of physicians. And just in general, physicians have a high rate of suicide compared to other professionals. Um, and I think that, again, is because there is so much responsibility um, that goes into taking care of people and a tendency to um, work, 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 and not take care of yourself, to neglect, um, you know, really taking good care of yourself. Before you joined us on the interview, I revealed to you and I revealed to the audience that one of the reasons um, I wanted to have you on and to get this topic is because of how I've evolved on this subject. And, you know, in my early 20s and even my teens, I looked at mental health as something like, you know, as you stated earlier, that it's something that's weak and you should just be able to work through it. We all have problems. You should just get over yours. But it's it's way more uh, complex than that. And I just really want to thank you for coming on and, and discussing this with us. 
Uh, I did want to throw it to my partner one more time just to double check to see if he had anything else before we got you out of here. No, I mean, I don't have anything else. Again, thank you, Dr. Williams, and, and just everything you said just reaffirmed. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just glad that my, the situation happened with my family. We were able to open up and, and, and get that person help because it's just amazing how you don't see things until crisis happens. So hopefully anybody listening will, you know, hear this interview. And if you see some signs, you see some things happening and people that you know, don't wait until, you know, you have a serious problem to, to address the issue. Again, the website is AtlantaSiteConsultants.com. If you're in the Atlanta area and you know someone that may need help, if you yourself are thinking that you possibly may need help, please visit their website. Nationally, the mental health number is 844-891-5463. They are available 24-7, so no matter what time, give them a call. Again, if you know someone that may need help. Dr. Amanda Williams, again, the 2012 mm-hmm. Compassionate Doctor Recognition Award winner and was recognized as Georgia's favorite doctor among patient choices. That was... That had to be a, a pretty great honor. What, what was that like for you? Uh, well, that's one of those honors that, that uh, actually kind of sneaks up on you. <laughs> um, someone else had to point out that I had, that I had received that. <laughs> I don't think I ever actually got notified. But most of these are, are Internet-based, um, you know, awards where if, if enough people, I think, just kind of write in, you know, uh, positive reviews and that sort of thing, all that data kind of gets uh, collected and, uh, I guess if you reach a certain threshold, maybe you get this award. <laughs> Very well. Well, we're glad to have you on. And, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I want to thank Dr. Amanda Williams for joining us today. Again, that website is AtlantaSiteConsultants.com, com. You can check out her practice um, Look her up, check her out. Uh, again, like I said during the interview, if you know someone that may need some help, don't hesitate to call. Uh, also, gave you the 24-hour uh, hotline as well. And if you yourself feel like you need someone to talk to and you don't have anyone to talk to, please call that uh, that hotline number I gave you. Uh, again, like I said when we introduced the Frank, if you know mental health is something that rarely gets talked about other than when there's a mass shooting or someone commits suicide. And I give you a lot of props, man, for bringing up, uh, you know, uh, it seemed like it hit home for you in some ways and you shared that with the audience, man. So I I give you a lot of props on that. Yeah, thanks, man. You know, it's funny because mental, you know, illness for for me or understanding growing up, and I said this, uh, you know, previously when we were interviewing, it's just like you think, oh, well, Especially in the South, like oh he, you know, he whip it out of him, you know, or you know he, there's a way to get something out of the person, um, not realizing that they they may have a chemical imbalance which is causing them to act in such a way they can't control, and and so certainly just recognizing that and understanding that it's nothing wrong, you didn't do anything wrong, you're not a bad person, not a bad parent or whatever it is if you're seeing things in your child or, or if you see things in a sibling. You know, you just have to, you know, get the, get them help before it, get, it turns into something worse. Because, you know, I sure, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who thought thought maybe something was going on with their family member. Then then an incident happened. You know, a Sandy Hook. You know, uh, maybe a Columbine. You know, and, and I'm not I'm not just pointing out those mass shootings. But I'm just saying there's incidents that happen, and potentially if if people had stepped in, maybe they could have been prevented. And, and that's really what we want is, is people who would not be afraid. To to you know, admit that there is an issue and the stigma, you know, it's over. It's not a big deal. You know, being there, mental illness is something that it can happen to anybody. Uh, you know, I did. You know, that's why I asked another question of you know, some people are not mentally mentally ill today, but could be tomorrow, and just understanding yeah. that process as well. Because I think I think people think, okay, yeah, you're born different, but you could be born fine, and something happens one day, too many things pile up on you, and you may you may snap, you may break from reality, and. So it's just important, man. And like I said, I encourage you to, as Byron said, to write maybe write down those numbers, keep them in your phone, just in case, uh, just in case you need them, either for yourself or for your family. Life is tough, man. Life is tough. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, and you probably can correct me if I'm wrong, she was our ninth 
consecutive guests. And I just want to say on Politically Entertaining, we've been so blessed to, you know, once we did the first interview with Erica Perkins, we've had a guest on the show every single show since. And, you know, that's not – obviously that was something that me and Frank hoped for, but it wasn't guaranteed. And, uh, you know, as we continue to make ground and try to grow our audience and, and talk to different people, I just think it's been a blessing to um, – have, you know, nine different people come on the show so far. And what I liked about her was she actually listened to, you know, when I first contacted her and told her about the show and what I wanted to discuss with her, you know, before she said yes, she was like, you know, well, let me listen to it and see if that's something I want to do. And she actually listened to a few of our past shows before agreeing, and she was great. She was actually, uh, after we you know, after we recorded the interview, I told her she actually was too great because she, she like, eliminated about three more of my questions when she was answering some of our other questions. So it was just great to have her on, and uh, I really hope that someone uh, found it helpful, and I hope that it encourages you to seek help for you or for anyone that you may know. So. Again, Dr. Amanda Williams, we thank you for coming on, and uh, we really appreciate you making time for it. Um, I've been saying that we're going to discuss the media, and a lot of times we hear, you know, money and politics is what's wrong. That's what we always hear, money and politics. And I believe it was on Real Time with Bill Maher, one of the guests said, it's not money and politics, it's money and media. And that's so that's so correct, and as I'm watching, like, you know, the situation room with Wolf Blitzen or whatever. Um, you know, a lot of these cable networks, they're bragging about the ratings. Remember when we had the Republican debate, especially the first one, and everybody was ready to see Trump? You know, all they could do was brag about how this was the highest-rated debate we've ever had. And unfortunately, while that's all good, that seems to be the driving force behind the stories that we get from the media, which is why you don't hear anybody really covering uh, free lunch programs getting cut or how Senator Booker and Scott are trying to fight poverty. You don't get those stories because that that's not what drives ratings. Donald Trump came to D.C. last weekend, Frank, and I kid you not, they covered his motorcade pulling up to the Republican uh, headquarters. How is that news? You know, like th- there's nothing else you could have been covering they, they've covered every single speech this man has had, and he's been bragging about how he doesn't have to spend money. He's right, because they're covering every – every day is a commercial for him. So when Bernie Sanders gives a, a, a victory speech one time, they didn't even cover it at all. Anytime Trump sends out a tweet, it, it's like it leads off a lot of these Sunday morning programs. So he has been both of them. He has meant ratings for them. And it's it's kind of a shame because one of the reasons we do this show, Frank, is we we feel like an informing electorate can defeat money in politics. So yes, money in politics can be a problem, but if you know what's going on, folks, if you're educated, if you, if you listen to shows like ours, you know you get the, all the money in the in all the money in politics in the world won't necessarily guarantee a candidate getting elected because you will know better. You will know what that candidate stands for. You will know what's going on, and you will make a more educated guess. So it's not so much money in politics. I think it's money in media. Um, do you, you agree or you disagree, or what's your take on that? I agree. I mean, you know, it's one of those things that you it, it almost became an old saying like money and politics and it was just convenient rather than looking at what it really was saying. You know, it's just one of those things that people say death and taxes and that kind of thing. Yeah. It just became a saying. It didn't necessarily people didn't know even what it meant. It was like, oh yeah, well, money and politics. Uh, you know, the, you know, I, I said this many times. I, I I encourage you to watch the movie Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal. Great movie, give you a great idea of, of some of the ideas, how media portrays things. Certainly it was a movie, but as we all know, truth is stranger than fiction. And, and like I said, I don't really have too much to add to your to your point, but Trump is, uh, you know, going back and tying everything full circle with the Van Jones interview, Trump is a master of media, social media, and he has, he has wrapped the networks around his finger. It doesn't matter if they're 
against him or for him. It doesn't matter because he is in a he's operating in a room where all publicity is good publicity. So whether or not people are saying yes, this is good, or that you know this is bad, he's getting attention, and he's a he's, he is the villain. There's only the villain. You know, you know. I give an analogy of a sports team, and I'll use I'll use your 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 favorite team or one of your favorite teams, the Miami Heat. You know, when they had you know LeBron and Wade and Bosh, and they were all you know rolling and cruising. There were a lot of people that hated the Miami. They would watch just to see if they lost. They they didn't necessarily care about the other team. There was a lot of you know Thunder fans and Spurs fans that were appearing. You know, all those years when uh, the Heat were playing in the finals, and and now you know obviously they're gone. But the point is. There's people now that are appearing, uh, you know, that hate Trump, but they don't necessarily like even like politics. They're just he's just he's eliciting a reaction, and you know it's an amazing thing to watch, and, and that's why, like I said before, man, he's he is he is on a a strong track to the White House, and I I don't know that he's going to be derailed by Hillary Clinton, which is another conversation for another show. So I'll just leave that there. <laughs> If he wins this presidency, you're gonna. I mean, I, I, I think. I and I obviously I haven't spoken to anyone, but I think a lot of people in the in the media would would like to see him win president because it would be nonstop coverage and and uh, gaffes that he he would probably say. So, you know, I, I hate the rail against the media because we we they're so they're so important to us. We definitely need them. Uh, but I just wish that they would do a better job sometimes and, um, you know, really educate the message. But that's what me and Frank are here for. So what they don't cover, we try and pick up for you. Uh, before we go, um, this week is Malcolm X's birthday, May 19. Uh, Malcolm Little was born in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, born in 1925. Uh, he, how can I put this when, when talking about him? He was definitely controversial, but, uh, you know, what, what black leader wasn't controversial back then? They, they tried to make Martin Luther King controversial, called him a racial agitator. Um, he's one of the few people, um, I'm not comparing him to Tupac, but I always have said that I wish I could have saw Tupac perform, and I wish I could have attended one of Malcolm X's speeches, like of all the um, celebrities or historical figures that are uh, no longer with, here with us, you know, I don't, I rarely get, you know, caught up in the, the nostalgia of wanting to be around when they were alive, but, and I was alive for uh, Tupac, but I didn't see him perform, but those two, I just feel like they just had an, an energy about them that just was very, very uh, gravitating. So I wish I could have attended one of his speeches. He was charismatic. He was uh, interesting and smart. And I hadn't thought of this till now. Um, I have a friend, you know, he went to, he went to high school with us, you know, uh, Sherman Cooley. He is actually currently incarcerated now. But I hadn't, I hadn't thought of this until I was preparing the show. I was like, you know, I wonder if one of the reasons I like Malcolm X so much is because in some ways he actually reminds me of Sherman. The fact that, you know, Malcolm spent time in jail and Sherman is currently in jail, but they are both talented, talented brothers. Um, I always tell people I never look down on people that have been locked up or locked up because we're all one bad mistake from being uh, incarcerated, and that's just the truth of the matter. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people in jail right now that <laughs> they never in their wildest dreams thought that they would be there. But he's talented and uh he was a very uh persuasive persuasive person. So I just I just thought about that as I was getting ready for the show. And Sherman is actually he's the person that actually really got me into Malcolm X as far as he suggested the uh, autobiography that was written and I I finally got around to reading it and I loved it. And uh, at one point I was reading it like every year. But um I just before we go, I just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, whether Malcolm X means to you, if he meant anything to you at all. I'm not um, trying to put my thoughts or beliefs on you. Just wanted to get real quick, real quick. You know, I, I don't have nearly a strong opinion or as foreign opinion as you. I do think he's very um, beneficial, obviously, in the civil rights movement. 
I think if you haven't listened to the interview where we talked to Dr. Claiborne Carson, uh, that is something yes. you should go back and listen to. That's on iTunes. You can go there, type in Politically Entertaining. Listen to it on iTunes. We're on Stitcher, Podbean, uh, as well as Google Play. You can check us out there. Uh, that interview is definitely worth checking out because I think there's an idea that some people are like, well, you're either Malcolm or Martin, kind of like you have these arguments, or you know, are you, you know, Kobe, are you Kobe or LeBron, are you, you know, those right. kind of weird things that are that are not important, but just appreciate both. Right, right, I agree, but you know, obviously, you know, basketball is one thing, but the, the civil rights struggle. I mean, I think go back and listen to that interview and, and the things that Malcolm did and said he was able to do because he wasn't necessarily in the South. Uh, directly, and I'm not saying that he, anything he said was wrong because I believe he was right. You know, he, he made a lot of great points about you know heritage and names and things. And so I mean, I, I, I'm not as familiar with his work as you, but I do know some of some of the things he said and done. So I mean, I have great I have great respect for him. He obviously had a huge uh, you know burden. You know, being in a time where you know the black man was you know black man being black people in general were were struggling to to for equality. He was a huge proponent in that because. You know, one of the things I don't know how true it was, but in the movie uh, Selma, which, which I which I thought was a pretty good movie, you know, there there's a meeting between Martin Luther King and the characters that play play the two respective Martin Luther King and Mal- Malcolm X, and Malcolm X basically says, "Look, you know, I'm here doing what I'm doing because I'm showing them that if they don't do it your way, they're gonna have to take it my way." And 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 you know, some of that was rhetoric, and I think that's one of the great things that Dr. Carson talked about, but. I think there's an idea that Malcolm X was better because he seemed to be willing to commit to, uh, you know, say more, uh, how would you say, hands-on action, violent action. But, you know, it, it was more of his approach. He was he was a little more militant, but I think he had a he was very keen. He wasn't angry. He wasn't an angry black man. He was very intelligent, and he was just trying to push buttons in a different way. And I think uh, Martin Luther King had a different method, and I think they both were successful in their own way, even though history's not going to show Malcolm X as being as influential because they don't want that image of a militant black man being successful. He's just as influential, so I do want to, you know, say that, you know, as far as in his defense, or not in his defense, but in, to his credit. And, you know, just something that certainly when, Mar- when you know, when Black History Month comes around, or, he, you know, he should be mentioned or he should be part of the pantheon of great civil rights leaders as well. And that's really all, all I have to say about it. His his book I feel like is a must read and I, I follow a guy on Twitter who says um he actually buys that book every year and leaves it on the bus uh and just hopes that a young mind finds it and decides to read it and learn something from it. I just thought that was a, a good on on unorthodox uh, idea and uh I actually hope that he has reached some people by doing that. So you took the rest of my points, man. You took the, the words right out of my mouth uh, as far as his contrast to Martin Luther King. I really felt like, felt like helped King be more effective in his methods because I do feel like a lot of uh, Southern racists was like, yeah, we don't like what King was doing, but we really don't like what Malcolm is doing up there, and we don't need him bringing that down here. So I think in some ways he helped King be more effective, but – as I stated in that interview that Frank mentioned with uh, Dr. Carson, I really hate the whole, I think X was better than King and this, that, and other. I appreciate both of the brothers and, and the sacrifices that they did for us, and uh, I really appreciate it. And that's a great interview, by the way. I do really encourage you folks to go back and listen to that Claiborne Carson uh, interview. Um, and the last point he said, uh, he he doesn't get the credit I think he's doing when compared to other historical figures. People will say, well, he was kind of controversial. So you're telling me a lot of our forefathers wasn't? The presidents that owned slaves, that's not controversial? We still have uh, holidays and they're, you know, in all of our history books. But um, that's all I'll say on that for now. Happy birthday, Malcolm X. And uh, Frank, go ahead and uh, take us out. Again, we want to thank all the listeners for listening to the show. You can always catch us on politicallyentertained.com. Uh, also, we're on Twitter at the Vocal Minority D A V O C L Minority. You, obviously, you can uh, follow us or, or download the podcast, which we encourage you to do on uh, iTunes or Stitcher, Podbean, 
or even now Google Play because that's a new uh, avenue for us as well. So definitely check us out there. You can always email us at old-fashioned email, info at politicalentertain.com as well, and we'll get back to you there. And if you want to just leave us a note on Facebook, definitely do that, and, and we'll get back to you again. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you guys soon on another episode of Politically Entertaining. Thank you for listening to Politically Entertaining. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and visit politicallyentertaining.com for the latest in political news and updates.